David spares the king's life. A reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 24, beginning in verse 8. Then David also went out of the cave and yelled after Saul, My master is the king! Saul looked back, and David bowed low out of respect, nose to the ground. David said to Saul, Why do you listen when people say David wants to ruin you? Look! Today your own eyes have seen that the Lord handed you over to me in the cave. But I refuse to kill you. I spared you, saying, I won't lift a hand against my master, because he is the Lord's anointed. Look here, my protector. See the corner of your robe in my hand? I cut off the corner, but I didn't kill you. So now know that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I haven't wronged you, but you are hunting me down, trying to kill me. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but I won't lift a hand against you. As the old proverb goes, evil deeds come from evildoers but I won't lift a hand against you. So who is Israel's king coming after? Who are you chasing? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord judge and decide between you and me. May he see what has happened, argue my case, and vindicate me against you. As soon as David finished saying all this to Saul, Saul said, David, my son, is that your voice? Then he broke down into tears, telling David, you are more righteous than I am, because you have treated me generously, but I have treated you terribly. Today, you've done me the good that you have done for me. How the Lord handed me over to you, but how you didn't kill me. When someone finds an enemy, do they send the enemy away in peace? May the Lord repay you with good for what you have done for me today. Here ends the third reading. Well now, good and gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together in this room be found pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, sisters and brothers, grace to you today and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. This fall, we're retelling the stories of our brother David with this question in mind. What does a whole human being look like? And we'll find out as we continue through his life, as we watch him, that while scripture calls him someone after God's own heart, David was far from perfect. David was not always an exemplary man. His story, in fact, plunges us into the messy business of living and, and reminds us that God takes the, the daily stuff of our lives, both the beautiful and the terrible parts, and uses them for holy purposes. None of it is wasted. Two weeks ago, we saw David bravely resisting an oppressor in his world as he made the faithful choice to stand and fight the giant Goliath. 
Today we see him coming to terms with a different kind of adversary and choosing this time faithfully not to fight. Last time we saw him take down an adversary. Today we see him give a more creative response. He makes peace with an adversary. He speaks the truth in love. Listen to the story. Years before the time of tribal leadership in Israel, known as the time of the judges, had come to an end. The people wanted new leadership. They wanted a king. All the other nations have a king, they said. We want to be like all the other nations. Actually, they had a king whose name was Yahweh, but they said, we're tired of worshiping an invisible God. We want a leader we can see. So God gave them exactly what they wanted, a handsome poster boy king by the name of Saul, who started out well enough, a natural leader, a brilliant military strategist. Eventually, though, Saul implodes. His reign ends in despair and failure. Some have actually called Saul the most tragic figure in all of scripture. And the root of Saul's failure can be summed up best by the words of the prophet Samuel uh, that once Samuel said to his very face. He said, Saul, the Lord anointed you king, but you're so small in your own eyes. God had chosen Saul, honored him with God's own favor, but the grandest, tallest man in Israel could not see himself as anything but small. Saul's story reminds me of an encounter that Barbara Brown Taylor once wrote about. She was in a preaching workshop years ago with a woman who said that every time she stood up to preach in her congregation, her stomach began to cramp, sometimes to the point in which she was forced to wrap up her sermon quickly. The pain made her beat a hasty retreat. And so this workshop together, the people in the workshop sort of began to explore with her the, what, what the root of this uh, experience might be. And eventually, when she felt safe enough to share it, she told of how she had deep doubts about her worthiness as a preacher. She'd grown up in a household in which little girls' voices didn't count for much, and her decision to go to seminary years later had met with her family's disapproval. What's more, there was a woman now in her congregation around her very own age who consistently made cutting remarks about her sermons. And, and so what the woman and this group discovered that day was that sin, which most often takes the form of self-aggrandizement, also can show up in a life in the form of self-negation. And that as different as the two are, the aftermath is the same, a refusal of God's God-given place in, in community and the loss of one's life and, and health. This is what happened to Saul. Because he could only see himself as small, he was afraid to be what God had empowered him and called him to be. Now, one of the consequences of seeing yourself small is this constant need to measure yourself against everybody else. Insecure in our own gifts, we become jealous of other people's gifts. And this was Saul's reaction to David. One day he hears women singing in the streets, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. 
and, 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 and even though they're actually praising Saul too, that acid envy burns inside of him. He can't stomach someone else's success. So he begins lashing out at David, which, which isn't to say he doesn't love David. He, he does. That's one of the tragedies of the small self syndrome. It always strikes out at people who are trying to love them. By this time, David had become the royal music therapist. He plays the harp for Saul whenever the king is depressed, which is often, actually. But more than once, while David is playing, Saul jumps up and throws a spear at him. It's dangerous, dangerous being a minister of music. (laughs) Would never throw a spear at that man. So David runs for his life. He becomes a fugitive and for eight years he runs from Saul. And so in our text today, uh, just before the part that Kara just read, we find that one day David and his company of men are still on the run from Saul. Saul is closing in with a much larger army. And David and his men are hiding in a cave at En Gedi near the Dead Sea. From inside the cave, The men can see Saul's army approached and they're huddled at the back of their cave and and they're in cold fear. Their hands are instinctively reaching for their swords, ready to defend themselves. When to their great surprise, Saul himself walks into the cave alone. His army is outside. Saul has no idea that David and his men are in the cave. He's actually just looking for a place to use the bathroom. I'm serious, you can read it. Just a few verses earlier, the Hebrew text euphemistically says, Saul went in to cover his feet. Most modern translations say something to the effect of Saul went in to relieve himself. And so now in full view of David's hidden army, Saul in in a most vulnerable position, squats down on his haunches and begins answering a call of nature. Don't you love the Bible? It's dark in there, and Saul can't, can't see a thing. David and his men can see plenty. The king is in a vulnerable position, to say the least, and David's troops say, David. God is handing your enemy over to you. You can do to him whatever seems best. So David creeps up on the king, his dagger in his hand. And he looks at that man who for years has hated him and hounded him and stolen years and years from his life. This man is evil. He's psychotic and hateful. And and he isn't supposed to be king. David is by God's own promise. So kill him, David. Take what belongs to you. All he has to do is strike to be rid of the enemy. He'll be safe. He'll become king. This whole moment seems like a gift wrapped in a bow. And David is tempted, just like you and I are sometimes tempted to take revenge, to get even with people who mistreat us. Maybe it's a boss who bullies you or a partner who betrayed you, 
or a parent who failed you or, or someone in church who has hurt you. And now you're presented with the opportunity to get even and something in you is tempted to retaliate, to return hurt for hurt. And David chooses. He chooses not to harm the king. What he does instead is he takes out his dagger and silently cuts a little piece of cloth from the king's robe. Saul stands up and leaves the cave while David returns to his men and says, this man is the Lord's anointed. God forbid that I should lift my hand against him. And then David waits a minute and goes out of the cave and calls after Saul, my master, the king. And Saul turns around and David bows down low with his nose to the ground. And then David says, why? Why do you believe those who say that I'm out to get you? This very day God delivered you into my hands and some urged me to kill you, but I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't lift a finger against the Lord's anointed. David said, oh, my protector, see this piece of cloth in my hand. I cut the corner of your robe in that cave, but I didn't kill you. Maybe God will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I never will. May God be the judge of us both. And those words pierce Saul. And he says, is that really you, David, my son? And Saul begins to cry and he weeps and weeps. And then he says this. He says, David, you are a better man than I. I gave you evil, you repaid it with good. May the Lord reward you for your kindness that you've shown to me today. And now I know that you are surely going to be king. And Saul goes home. This story has so much to teach us about how we act in conflict. We learn from David that it's possible to confront without rage, without hate, without inflicting pain. Now, David does confront. Did you notice that? You hunt me down to kill me. Why? You accuse me falsely. Why? He tells the painful truth to Saul, but without the intent to injure and without exercising vengeance. That's not so much the way most of us respond. Human reflex is when you are hurt, you hurt back. You injure me, I'm going to injure you. Back and forth, pain for pain, hurt for hurt. But all that does is perpetuate the cycle and escalate the cycle. The hurt only stops when someone will step outside the cycle and make a different response. Do you see what David is doing here? He pulls himself out of the revenge cycle. He tells the truth in love and gives his adversary a chance to respond in a different way. This is what Jesus meant when he said, if someone hits you, turn the other cheek. Respond to evil, not just by taking it, but by actually offering yourself, offering a new response of good. And we can do this if, as we've seen in these texts, we have the kinds of eyes that will see to the heart of the other person. Eyes that see past the surface that may look to us like an enemy because our adversary is always more than just an enemy. 
I told this story in the very first sermon I ever offered here at First Baptist Church almost four years ago. Back when our kids were in high school, Taylor and I had a mother and son night out together in Atlanta. Lucy was on spring break with friends. We went out for Italian food and then to the Apple store, which is sort of Taylor's mothership in a lot of ways. And, and, uh, and then we wound up browsing together in an art gallery, which both of us loved. I stayed back just a little, not wanting to crowd his experience. And, and I watched as he lingered at some of those paintings for 10, 15 minutes with his face just inches from the canvas. And afterwards, we went to Cheesecake Factory for dessert and coffee. And as we were eating out of the blue, Taylor said, you know, I'm not much of an artist, but if I were a painter, I know exactly what I would create. I said, well, tell me. He said, I would paint a banquet scene, a super elegant banquet, and around the table would be some very particular guests. Well, who would you invite? I said. He said, at my banquet, there would be Attila the Hun, Adolf Hitler, and Osama bin Laden. Said that's pretty intense company. And he said, Yeah, but in my painting, we would still recognize them, but they would look different to us than we're used to seeing them. And I said, What in the world are you talking about? And he said, Well, because we hate them, we only know how to see them in one particular way. But in my painting, we'd be able to see them as they appear to God who only knows how to love them. David looks at Saul and sees someone who is precious to God. People who live after God's own heart will come out of the dark of hurt for hurt to demonstrate God's counterintuitive love. And it's not easy. In fact, it's, it's downright risky Peacemaking is, is maybe the most dangerous work in the world because peace isn't made with friends. Peace is made with enemies. It's not easy. But it is the way of Jesus, the son of David, who came to us when we were all still adversaries of God and called out to us and took the risk of placing himself in our hands for the sake of peace with God. The same Christ has shown us how to make peace with one another. He's shown us how to speak the truth to one another in love. We let ourselves be seen. I, I was in a little group of folk from First Baptist just yesterday morning in which we ventured to lower some of our masks and let ourselves begin to be seen. And when evil threatens, the people of God answer with good. This is how God has answered us in Christ. And so in Christ, this is how we answer each other. May God make it so in your life and in mine and in our life together as a church. Amen. And so reconciling God, you came to us in mercy. Teach us mercy toward each other. 
And as in Christ you've reconciled us to yourself, please help us to take our own risks of reconciliation. And it's in Christ's own name that we pray. Amen.